For his promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is in the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law where there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offsprings, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted for us who believed in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trans- trespasses and raised for our justification. Well, this morning we're going to conclude uh, our really first series in the book of Romans. Uh, I've never actually preached through the book of Romans, and of course we're not uh, finished it. Uh, we may pick it up a little bit later this year, but uh, at least for now we're going we're gonna to take a break during the Lenten season and look at something else. Hopefully we'll come back to it at some point. But it has been uh, just a rich time this, thus far. Uh, hopefully you've been blessed by it. I know I certainly have. Uh, but before we look at this passage, let's pray together. Father, uh, we pray that the words of my mouth, uh, the meditations of our hearts as we encounter your word, uh, would be pleasing to you. Speak to our hearts, Father. We need to hear your voice. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we had a a, a really busy kind of work weekend uh, at the Donahue House. We got really eager for spring, as many people have. So uh, on Friday, we had five cubic yards of mulch delivered uh, to our house. So ever since then, we've just burst into to motion, trying to, to spread that mulch into different places uh, in our backyard. And it was, it was a lot of work. I'm impressed my back isn't hurting me this morning. It was a lot of work. But one of the really sweet things that happened is, of course, as many of you know, we have a, a one-year-old at our house, and uh, she kind of tools around in the backyard while we're spreading our mulch. And of course, she comes over, and she very sweetly wants to help us spread the mulch. She puts her hands in it and starts spreading things around. And uh, it is a, a very sweet thing that she wanted to do that. But, but her impact, of course, was very minimal in terms of, of spreading this mulch. And uh, while we found it to be very sweet, it wasn't actually very helpful in the long run. And uh, as I saw her doing that, it made me really think about Paul's discussion of salvation that we've been looking at in the book of Romans. And our, our salvation, our rescue is a bit like this because there's something in our hearts that wants us to be able to contribute. 
We want to somehow add on to our rescue. After all, if, if we can contribute, then we can to some degree maintain our control and feel as if we have some credit in our salvation. It gives us an opportunity to, to maintain our pride in this whole thing. And this is the very thing that Paul is tackling or even dismantling here in this section. Because what he does is he answers every objection or every strategy that we devise to somehow contribute to our rescue. You see, the human heart in its resistance to God does this. It is by nature credit-seeking. And yet, what Paul does is he shoots down every single attempt of our hearts to do this. We are far too gone to be able to contribute. It is all of God. It is all of grace. It is all through faith and not of our own effort. I want to talk this morning about that word called faith, okay? We've been talking about it a lot in this series, and, and quite frankly, it is something that Christians talk a lot about. We talk a lot about faith, but at the same time, it is one of the most misunderstood concepts in all of the church. So in the book of Romans, Paul helps us to see that faith is the most essential element in what it means to be justified, in what it means to experience the power of God. And, and in order for Paul to communicate that, he offers us a case study to help us see how all this great big theology plays out in the practicality of life. So he chooses Abraham. We saw this last week. He chooses Abraham, the epitome of faith for the Jewish people that would have been reading this letter. If you were with us last week, we saw that, that Abraham's faith was uh, the instrument of, of his justification. It was the instrument of a righteousness that was given to him that was not his own. And it was the product of, of obedience that flowed out of a changed life. But this week what I want to do is focus more on what we mean by this word of faith, because it's really important. What do we mean by this mysterious concept that is absolute in the end of the day to experiencing real and true life as God intended it? So whenever we try to define something, I always find it helpful to look at the opposite. So if faith is so important, then, then what is the opposite of faith? Well, verse 20 tells us. It tells us that unbelief or distrust is the opposite of faith. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 1, it gives the, the quintessential Bible definition of what this thing called faith is. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. So the opposite of this would mean that our assurance or our certainty is lacking, that in some ways our conviction concerning things that are unseen are wavering. They are here today and gone tomorrow. Really, the opposite of faith is unbelief, and the fruit of that unbelief is distrust in God. Luke chapter 18 uh, tells a, a wonderful story, uh, in some ways a tragic story, but a wonderful story about a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and he comes to Jesus with a really important question. He comes to Jesus saying, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus tells him that for him, the path to eternal life meant that he needed to walk away from all that he had accomplished and all that he had accrued in his life. He had to walk away from all the wealth that he had amassed. And what the story tells us is that was too much. It was too much to ask of him, and he walked away from Jesus that day. He walked away because he could not trust Jesus enough with his life. He did not believe that the life that Jesus offered was better than the one that he had engineered for himself. His distrust was the fruit of his unbelief. He chose instead to trust in his wealth. Friends, the truth is that we are all trusting in something in order to make our lives work. We are all trusting in something that we hope will carry us on to some sort of reality that is beyond this physical world. For most of us, we'd simply rather trust in ourselves. We are plagued by unbelief, so instead we place our trust in ourselves. But we all know down deep, at the end of the day, when life really pushes back, that that is never enough for us. This is certainly true when it comes to matters of our rescue and our salvation, but it also true is true of the day-to-day as well. When challenges arise in your life, how do you rise up to meet those challenges? Do you rise up to meet them with confidence that you have the ability, that you have the wits about you, the talents to tackle those challenges that life throws your way? Or have you learned to distrust yourself and to place your trust in something that is more secure? Friends, most of the trouble that we get into in life is a result of unbelief. It's a result of this mis placed belief. It's choosing not to believe in the promises of God and, in not, and choosing not to trust God with the particulars of our life. Instead, it is choosing to put our confidence in ourselves. Friends, this is the opposite of what true faith is really all about. So if unbelief and distrust are the opposite, then, then what is the real thing? What is the substance of real faith? Well, I think our passage tells us. Look at verse 18. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he was considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I don't know if you've heard the story about Abraham before, but if you've grown up in the church, this story often becomes very familiar to us, so we, we sometimes miss out on the impossibility of what is being said here. You see, in Genesis 12, God visits Abraham, and at this point in Abraham's life, he is 75 years old. And God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I am going to make you into a great nation. Just a few chapters later, God brings Abraham onto the top of a mountain on a starry night, and he says to Abraham, look up at the stars. And he says, you're going to have as many offspring as there are stars in the sky. Imagine that promise. 
By Genesis chapter 17, it's 25 years later, and Abraham is still holding on to that promise. At at this point in his life, he and Sarah are nearly 100 years old. Now, I know that folks lived longer back then than they do now, but gang, that is still really old. A hundred years. How many hundred-year-olds do you know are having young children, let alone are giving birth? And we can sit here and and laugh at the absurdity of that fact. And And in fact, probably Abraham and Sarah laughed about it as well. We would never believe it if we heard it. And yet Abraham held tightly to this promise of God. He had faith that God would follow through on his promises. The Puritans spoke a lot about this thing called faith, and they define faith really in three ways. The first essential thing to faith is knowledge. We have to know certain things when it comes to faith in our heads. There's a cognitive element to faith. But the second piece of that is assent, meaning we have to, to, uh, to agree that the things that we know in our head are real and true. But the hardest and most difficult part of faith may come in this third element that they called affiance. It's another word for the word we use for betrothed or engaged. Because affiance is grasping the knowledge we've, been, we've given assent to and making it our own, or trusting in it. Well, what did Abraham know in this story? And was he being reasonable here? Was he being rational to actually hold on to the promises of God? You see, often what people do is they put rationality on this side and faith on this side as if somehow those two don't go together. As if somehow we need to disengage our minds when it comes to matters of faith. But in some ways, I don't think that's what Abraham is doing at all here. Sure, it seemed incredibly unlikely to him. Sure, his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's. But despite all of that, it was perfectly reasonable for Abraham to trust in God. It was perfectly reasonable because he knew God was bigger than his circumstance. Verse 20 says he had the glory of God set before him. Sure, it seemed wildly unlikely, but if God promised it, then it will happen. John Stott said, Faith is not burying our heads in the sand or screwing ourselves up to believe what we know is not true or even whistling in the dark to keep our spirits up. Instead, on the contrary, our faith is a reasoning trust. There can be no believing without thinking. See, friends, this was the knowledge that had defined Abraham's faith. He believed, he assented that the glory of God was the most real thing that there is, and so he trusted in it. Friends, that is what faith is all about. You see, the gospel tells us that God took on skin. He became one of us to redeem us. He died on a Friday, was raised from the dead on a Sunday. He did all of this because he loved us. 
We were his enemies. We were running in the opposite direction. We were in the crowd shouting, crucify him. We spit at him. We mocked him. We were going our own way. And yet in love, he gave himself up for us. Friends, it's important to know these things. But bare knowledge or even bare belief is not enough because he calls us to trust him. And that is the only way. We need to be broken of trusting in ourselves. We need to see that trusting in the living God is the most rational thing that we can do. We need to instead place our faith in God. Charles Spurgeon, who was the old Baptist uh, minister who gave wonderfully colorful illustrations, he, he said this about faith. He said, suppose a fire is in the upper room of a house and people are gathered around in the street watching. And yet, tragically, it is discovered that there is a child in the upper room. How is he to escape? He cannot leap down or he will be killed. So a strong man comes beneath and cries out, drop into my arms. It is part of faith to know that the man is there. It's another part of faith to believe that the man is strong, but the essence of faith lies in dropping down into the man's arms. Friends, faith is dropping into the arms of a Savior when it comes to our rescue, and that is the substance of faith. Finally, the last thing we see is the strength of faith. We see it in verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see, in this passage, Abraham is held up as a model of faith. He's, he's like a tree that's firmly rooted in the ground so that when the wind and the storms come, they stand strong. You see, some people believe that it took 25-plus years between God's initial promise to Abraham and then the arrival of his son, Isaac, finally. So for 25 years, Abraham had to cling to the promises of God no matter how unlikely or impossible it seemed. Abraham didn't allow his circumstances to overcome the promises of God in his life. And because of this, he is held up to us as a strong man of faith. But gang, here's what I've wrestled with this week. If you actually read the book of Genesis, you discover something. You discover that he actually did waver in his faith. There are instances where Abraham and Sarah did take matters into their own hands to hasten the promises of God into fruition. They were very prone to trust themselves and to try to help God and execute His plan. There were moments of incredible doubt and in distrust, moments of great unbelief. So how can we say now that Abraham's faith was so strong? Well, I think we can say it because this, because the strength of his faith came in the object in which his faith was placed in. You see, Abraham had great faith not because his faith was strong, but because the object of his faith was strong. 
Many of you know I, I teach religion classes, and one of my favorite assignments to do is to give my, my, my students the first paper they have to write is a spiritual autobiography, okay, where they have to sit down and, and think about kind of where they've gone and where they are spiritually at this moment. And if I read, there's one thing I read consistently through so many papers over the years of doing this, and that is this. I have faith, but it doesn't really matter what I have faith in, right? Maybe you've heard this before. This really is a a drumbeat that we hear in our culture a lot. All that's important is that we have faith. It doesn't necessarily matter what we have faith in. Well, friends, that's a really nice concept but it doesn't work in the real world. Think about it this way. Imagine that I'm looking for a brand new mechanic because I need some work done on my car, and I begin to ask around, and I get all sorts of recommendations. And and maybe there's even one mechanic in particular that I think, I'm going to try this mechanic. So I ask around, and what everybody tells me is this. Well, he's a nice guy, but he isn't trustworthy. Okay? Do you think I'm going to go to this mechanic? It is important. I I drive my car with my kids in it. This is incredibly important. Do you think I think to myself, well, as long as I have faith in the mechanic, it's okay, even if he isn't trustworthy? No, we would never say that. To say that in many ways is foolish, and yet it has become popular to say that very thing when it comes to our souls. When I drop off my car, the strength or weakness of my faith matters little. What matters is the trustworthiness of the mechanic. Friends, the strength of our faith lies in the object that we place it in. And I don't know about you, but that is such good news for my soul. I feel like the poet Emily Dickinson who said this, we both believe and disbelieve a hundred times in one hour. Just like everyone else, I struggle with doubt and unbelief. I'm far more prone to trust in myself than in God. I'm far more prone to place my confidence in my own ability rather than God's. My circumstances often feel far bigger than the power of God, and that is why I am thankful that the quality of my faith is not the thing that saves me, but the object of my faith is Jesus Christ. And T. Wright said, faith isn't something you can just drum up like that by your own efforts. It's what comes when you are looking hard at the object of your faith namely Jesus. A.W. Tozer said, faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. Friends, God has made many promises to you and to I, just as He did Abraham. If you are in Christ, He has justified you and given you His righteousness. You are no longer defined by your sin. You have been forgiven. He promises to never leave you, to never forsake you. He gathers you up in His arms like a father gathers up a small child. We no longer need to fear His wrath and judgment. Instead, He promises to delight Himself in us. He promises that everything that comes your way is for your good. And He promises to prepare a place for you that at the moment of your death, you will be ushered into bliss and joy that is greater than your minds can ever imagine. 
All of this is yours by faith. And that faith even itself is a gift from God. So look to Jesus. Ask God to give you great faith, faith made strong because of Christ. Charles Wesley wrote this poem. He said this, In hope against all hope, self-desperate I believe, faith, mighty faith, the promise sees, and looks to that alone, laughs at impossibilities, and cries, it shall be done. Let's pray.